You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Watt Watchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use, and SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to another episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach, ITK analyst. David, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Giles. I trust you're well. Uh, I trust all of our listeners uh, are well. And I'd like to welcome our special international guest today. Yes, we're going to America this time. Um, I'd like to introduce Paul Denham. Paul, um, you're a grid systems analyst with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Golden, Colorado, with a speciality understand in solar and storage systems is that right that is correct and 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 it's great to be here thanks for the introduction yes i'm a i work on grid integration of renewable energy with the focus on the role of of energy storage and its role in integrating renewable energy i do work on both solar and wind um, but uh, uh, do spend probably more of my time looking at solar energy and the integration of solar and storage onto the grid well, that's why we've got you on board, because it's a fascinating subject and we're all moving towards a high renewable energy future, um, some slower and some faster and not with some out some obstacles. Can I just start with just a broader question? In Australia, we don't seem to be able to have a sensible public discussion. I mean, there's lots of sort of discussions in specialist areas, but the public discussions about the shift from coal to renewables, the role of storage and other new technologies. Just in the last week, we've just had this massive push by a very conservative base to build new coal-fired power plants because they fear that if, if one old one closes, then the lights go out. Are you still struggling with those sorts of conversations in America? Well, sure. And and it really comes down to the change in the way that we do analysis of the reliability of the grid. Obviously, there's concern about this concept of baseload power plants. And baseload power plants are those that run 24-7 or close to 24-7. And they've historically been kind of the backbone of the power grid. So there's this natural inclination to say, well, wait a second. If we retire all of those baseload power plants, we're no longer going to have a reliable power system. And that concern is based on kind of historic way we've operated the grid. And it will take a shift. We're going to need to develop new methods of understanding how to, to reliably provide energy to the to the grid, um, as well as just kind of look forward and understanding the potential opportunities and drawbacks and limitations of solar power. So it's really going to require kind of the complete rethinking of how we do our engineering analysis, as well as proper communication of those results. Um, it is true that the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't always blow, but that doesn't mean that adding solar and wind and retiring traditional baseload plants will necessarily decrease the reliability the power system. So and one of the major sort of headline findings, like, I guess you could say, from the work of the National Renewable Energy Laboratory is basically, if I could sort of sum it up this way, that um, the US system, which is probably the biggest electricity grid um, and system in the world, can quite reasonably absorb about 80% renewables, I think you, you say, by about 2050. Um with a focus, I guess, then the focus needs to switch, say, from baseload to this idea of flexible capacity and flexible generation and, and, and um, just basically, yeah, flexible supply. That's correct. We do not want to change the reliability. If anything, we want to maintain or actually increase both the reliability and the resiliency of the three power grids in the U.S. We actually have three separate um, interconnections. We have one in the east that provides about 75% of the country, one in the west that provides a 
about 20% um, of, of the demand. It's, it's much larger because it's in lightly populated areas. And then Texas has its own power grid. Um, but yes, we, we look at maintaining the power system with the same level of reliability, just with a different set of resources, understanding the fact that it's not going to be just a combination of traditional base load intermediate load peak, but a combination of, of different resources, including renewables, storage, and a variety of other flexibility options. Mm. Do you have any sort of outlook then about where we're at with the costs? Um, I guess one of the big things, um, we, we seem to understand now that we can actually deliver this grid um, as reliable or even possibly more reliably um, in the future with, with renewables. Are you concerned about the cost and the ability to actually deliver this at, 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 a, at, a, at a comparable or even a cheaper cost than what we've got now with fossil fuels? I'm not. Um, you know, we, we do look at, at scenarios up to 80% renewable energy, and that's not just wind and solar. I mean, we do have, um, we have you know, significant hydro resources here in the U.S. that we already use. There's probably some additional hydro that could be, that could be tapped. We've got geothermal and, then of course, some biomass resources that can be um, delivered, deliver electricity sustainably. Um, obviously, wind and solar will be a large fraction of that, but it's not just wind and solar. So, We've looked at up to 80%, and we feel comfortable that the combination of technologies that um, exist now or kind of you know, near-term technologies can probably deliver that 80% reliably at costs that are similar to those provided by fossil fuels. It really is that last 20% that, that I feel pretty comfortable saying that I certainly don't know how to do it. And I also go as far as saying that I don't think very many people really do understand how to get that last 20% of fossil energy out of the grid yet. We don't quite understand the mix of technologies that would need to uh, be deployed. We probably aren't quite there with things like long duration, really long duration storage. We don't really understand the ability of, of demand shifting over long time periods. Um, but 80% we haven't done every element of the study, but we, we're gaining confidence through multiple studies that 80% is probably doable at you know co kind of cost competitive uh, levels with with traditional fossil resources. Hmm. So I might um, jump in there, Paul. Um, so California, I guess, is an interesting uh, situation. It's part of the Western interconnection. Interconnection, I guess, they're up to about 30%. Uh, renewables already and one of your recent papers noted that of the 25 gigawatts or so of uh, gas mostly gas power 10 or 11 gigawatts is likely to retire over the next 10 years how do you see that being replaced and california uh, managing its growing renewable penetration up towards 50 percent over the next five or six years it's a very broad question but uh um, I just thought I'd start there. Sure, sure. Well, so I, I do, I'm really excited about storage. Look, I've been working on storage now for about 15 years, and I'd, I'd say for the first decade or so, it was kind of a fun academic thing that I'd, I'd work on different elements of it, but it didn't really seem to be like it was, it was really, you know, near term. Over the past five years, we have seen dramatic cost reductions in storage, and so I can now stand in front of an audience and say, you know what? it looks like this is going to be cost competitive. I think there's a lot of analysts now that are saying storage is cost competitive with peakers in certain applications. I wouldn't say broadly across the U.S. we're there yet, but I would definitely say over the next few years, we're going to see the number of applications, the number of locations where storage can actually be an effective uh, cost competitive replacement for traditional combustion turbines. That's just going to grow. So, that grows. so that's really exciting. I think... Um, 
look, there's a place for gas turbines. There's a place for traditional capacity. I, you know, I cannot see storage ever completely replacing kind of our traditional generation resources. You know, again, maybe if we solve the seasonal storage problem, um, you know, gas turbines and other peakers, they're they're wonderfully flexible resources, and I'm I'm glad they're out there. But for you know a lot of applications for for some of that peaking capacity, I think energy storage has has the potential to to achieve significant uh, growth in it, in its market potential. So, I mean, first of all, in California, when I look at how the ramp actually is done at the moment, basically it's really exports and imports to the rest of the Western in connection that shoulder most of that flexibility strategy. I am not sure that it's most of it. I mean, it is some, but California has, I mean, um, California doesn't have, well, really any coal plants. So they already have kind of an inherently flexible system. They've got a lot of um, open cycle and combined cycle gas plants that they've become accustomed to ramping. They have a lot of in-state hydro that they ramp. So while they do, you know, use resources in their neighbors, I mean, they are largely, accom- you know, accomplishing their ramp in- with internal resources. And so, uh, uh, well, and when I look forward, as you take that gas out and we replace it with some other form of storage, I guess here in Australia. Uh, the debate has been that, for instance, if it has to be renewable storage, that like pumped hydro, once you get past it beyond one hour, uh, is seems to be more economic uh, um, than than batteries. Uh, how do you actually see it being done in California? What what do you think will actually replace the gas? Well, they're they're deploying storage now, and, and California is one of those places where, in niche applications, storage might be cost competitive. So, um, you know, California is a funny place. Um, you know, they've got a lot of rules and restrictions. Um, they're they're an interesting grid, um, but um, there are places where, you know, through through congestion, electricity congestion, um, it's it's tough to site new thermal resources. And so it's either very difficult to site or there's a lot of restrictions on how much you can run, or it's just simply cost you know really expensive because land is, is expensive. So there are there are places in California now where I think you can legitimately say that you know a four hour storage device um, can replace some of their peaking capacity. So I think that in California um, it's it is one of those places, you know, kind of tip of the spear places where we are going to see some uh, you know storage deployments that are essentially cost neutral compared to a thermal resource. That's right. And uh, the same, I mean, if it's difficult to build large hydro in California these days, I assume it's pretty difficult to get new pumped hydro done as well. So storage can either be batteries or I guess California is also in the leading edge of concentrating solar, uh, isn't it? That's right. So, so California has had some early deployments of, of concentrating solar power plants. Um, unfortunately, some of those plants were deployed without storage at the time. You know, thermal storage wasn't wasn't quite there. Um, more recently, a plant deployed in Nevada has 12 hours of thermal energy storage. So, concentrating solar power is a is a really cool resource. Um, it's it's a fun thing to study. It's it's obviously a lot different than batteries because you're only storing solar energy where batteries can store different resources. But the incredible solar resource that we have here in the Southwest. And of course, you guys have great solar resources as well. Um, I think CSP, well, I think there's a lot of people that say CSP is dead. Um, every time somebody says CSP is dead, the CSP industry comes back and has managed to do new things, um, moving from um, troughs to tower technology with lower cost heliostats, improving the efficiency 
incorporating low-cost um, thermal energy storage. So I wouldn't give up on, on CSP. It's a, it's a fun technology to look at, and um, you know, I definitely wouldn't write it off. It's got some potential that we need to, to keep an eye on. But from your point of view, at the moment, the, the, the main game is, is, is batteries, is it? Yeah, that's where the action is. I think we need to, you know, we, we need to temper the excitement with reality. Um, and so for the first couple of years where people talked about batteries, you know, I was definitely kind of on the fence skeptical wise. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's hard to ignore the fact that the prices are coming down. And when you do a cold, rational economic calculation, you know, I can make storage come real close to working in a lot of places in the United States. And if the, the price trajectory is continue to come you know anything like what people talk about it, it's going to happen yeah it interests me because the gas price in australia is way higher like three times to at least double what it is in the united states at the moment and yet uh, we seem to have trouble getting the battery storage to to work and it, it requires our government and our electricity prices are higher than california's not that much higher um, but a little bit and yet we have trouble making the battery storage work so so it does interest me uh, a lot about that. What what do you actually see? Do you actually see any evidence? Because most of the um, uh, in California installations, the utility scale ones of battery that I see, that actually don't talk about the costs at all. It's the last, the only number that, that you don't see. Yeah, and, and so that's something we have to be really careful about is is because you know, we when we just look a few years past and look at the numbers of the installed cost of batteries, um, they were really high. And, and, and like I said, I can't make an argument that batteries right now can be a cost-effective drop-in replacement. So a couple things to keep in mind. When we talk about a, the installation of a battery system, we're talking about the modules themselves, the, the, the battery packs, um, plus the balance of systems. And one of the things that's very important is to recognize that the balance of system, the cost of the inverter, the software, the containers, that's not yet commoditized. And that has really got to be one of the key things that happens is the software. I mean, essentially, software becomes free. I mean, we, we all have software. We know that the, the marginal cost of the next unit of, 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 of a software product is essentially zero. Once you've paid off the, the price of developing software, it's, it's basically free. There needs to be you know, costs of inverters. A battery inverter is not that much different than a PV inverter. There's the rectifier component, so there's a little bit of extra filtering components and things like that. But at the end of the day, battery inverters are way more expensive than PV inverters for the reason we haven't sold gigawatts and gigawatts of battery inverters. That will happen. Once the all of the components become commoditized, then that's when batteries will really become you know, cost competitive. We're not there yet. So, so that's, that's the big caveat about me going up and waving my hands and saying, oh, batteries are wonderful. Not yet. We got a couple things that we need to, to, to do. But once that happens, then we'll, we'll be much closer to cost, com, you know, cost parity. That's right. And so in Australia, one of the debates we have is about whether batteries should be on the fringe of the grid that is in households and, and fully distributed. And I'm, I'm going to put that debate to one side for a moment because I'd like to talk a little bit about some of your recent work, which is looking at uh, locating batteries next to a PV farM uh, and, uh, and essentially uh, DC coupling them. 
What kind of cost reductions do your models show for those kind of systems compared to standalone batteries and PV farms? Yeah, so so we don't know. Um, it, that's really going to be up to the developer to kind of you know nail down those costs. Basically, what it comes down to is if you put storage and you co-locate it with a, 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 a solar plant, um, you've got some economy of scale and engineering, but you also reduce the cost of a key piece of hardware. And that's essentially you don't no longer need two inverters. Um, you've got the, the battery inverter and the solar inverter. And if you combine them on the DC side of the the inverter, or what's called DC coupling, you can eliminate the second inverter. Now, the cost of a, of a standard PV inverter is cheap. In, in US, it's you know, 10 cents per watt type of number. But that's still you know, a non-trivial fraction of the total cost of the system. So you kind of just start there, that kind of 10 cent per, per watt, um, $100 per kilowatt type of number, um, which is still going to be you know, something close to it's more than 5% of the total cost of the, the of a commoditized storage system. But then when you add in the extra reduction in engineering costs and interconnections associated with batteries coupled on the AC side of the system, um, you'll get a non-trivial cost reduction. Again, we're not talking 50%, we're not talking 20%, you know, but it's enough that that little cost reduction, plus a bunch of other things that you can do, like avoid clipping and a few other nice things that you can do when they're coupled, um, that appears to tip it over towards DC coupling being superior to AC coupling. Yeah, I'll, I'll hand it back to Giles in a minute. I just wanted to talk about clipping for a second. Uh, this is the idea that you would put in uh, 70 megawatts, say, of uh, DC solar panels and have a 50 megawatt inverter. But uh, the suggestion I've heard from, say, Fluence, uh, who have just introduced a DC coupled battery product that they call Sunflex, is that in fact you, you might increase that ratio up towards two to one. Uh, because then uh, your sort of marginal cost of the extra panel uh, is, 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 is much less than the average cost of the solar system. And so it makes sense to increase that ratio and essentially charge your battery more cheaply uh, and yet still get some of the power to go through uh, w w when the sun is shining. Uh, do you think about that as well? Absolutely. So what you're describing is, is either called the DC to AC ratio or sometimes called the inverter loading ratio. And here in the States, it's, it's very common for there to be about 1.2 to 1.3 times as much DC rated panels as the AC rated inverters. And you don't really clip very much. I mean, the sun is only producing full output for you know, a few hours per year. So most of the time you don't clip very much. But you're absolutely right. You can go to inverter loading ratios that are, that are significantly greater and that clipped energy can be stored um, and, and used at a later time. So, so yeah, there's a, there's a real interesting opportunity. Um, I think we have yet to do the optimization. We're, we're, we're still waiting for the industry to become a little bit mature, more mature, have more vendors offering uh, storage integrated solar products to really see where the costs will come down and figure out what that optimum inverter loading ratio really will be. So, Paul, you mentioned about the need to sort of reduce the costs and particularly the balance of systems. Um, I'm just wondering what is been happening on the other side of the equation. Um, in Australia, of course, we've got what we call the Tesla big battery, which is this 100, kilo, uh, 100 megawatts, sorry, 100, 129 megawatt hour um, installation next to the Hornsdale wind farm, which I think for the moment until you guys complete your next battery installation is the biggest lithium mine in the world. Um, it is the first big battery storage installation in Australia. Um, it's in South Australia, which is actually heading from about 50, 55% renewables to about 70%, 75% over the next five to 10 years. So that's going to be interesting. 
But it's really fascinating to see how the grid operator is looking at this battery. Um, it's just put out a report um, just in the last day or two, which notes how fast it is, how accurate it is, accurate it is um, um, its ability to reduce prices in, in certain situations, particularly in FCAS markets. But it, but it also notes that actually there isn't actually a market for such speed and such accuracy. Um, and it's kind of also interesting to note how it's considering using this battery and other batteries to provide a great sort of stabilisation mechanism which will prevent South Australia being islanded from the rest of the grid. And we've just got one or two um, reasonably weak connections between between our grid or this one and that one. So what's happening in, 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 in America on those, on those lines? Because you've had battery storage for longer than us. Um, is there this idea that... You know, battery storage is not just like a one-tricked um, machine. It can actually do a lot of different things, but it probably needs the rules to be redefined and a different way of actually thinking about the operating of the grid. Sure. Well, that's uh, you've asked a lot there. So yes, I have. Uh, so, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we, yeah. Look, when you go to an energy storage conference or a battery conference, it's it's always interesting, and, and quite frankly, you're going to hear a lot of these these themes repeated. And one of this is the the concept of stacked services, the fact that batteries can do all these wonderful things. Um, the other kind of comment slash complaint is the fact that they're not being compensated for all those things, and that's largely true. And there have been efforts to change the rules. So. Um, the Federal Energy Regulatory, um, you know, our kind of national regulatory body that, that oversees grid electricity, at least in, on the wholesale market side, has ordered our independent system operator, RTO, or regional transmission operators, to change the way they compensate for certain services. And, and the first one was on our frequency regulation market. I'm not sure what the actual analogy on, on I think it would probably be secondary reserves in Australia, I'm guessing. But anyway, um, it's the automatic automated service uh, signals that are sent to to balance supply and demand on kind of the second to second time frame. Um, our FERC changed the rules to reward generators that could more accurately follow signals. So that's one thing that's happened. Um, but even that, after that, there was continued recognition um, that, that storage is just simply not able to be um, compensated fairly um, by existing rules. So FERC just recently ordered what's called Order 841, which is basically telling the ISOs that they need to do a better job. They need to rethink the compensation. And so now it's going to be up to the ISOs and, and R2s here in the United States to come up with a new set of rules um, for appropriate compensation of storage. So we'll kind of just ha kind of have to sit back and watch as the ISOs, ISOs in the U.S. kind of figure out what is the next step? What are the, the right ways of compensating, and then potentially new services. So we're always looking towards additional things. Um, so in, in terms of things like primary frequency response or governor response, um, that is not a market service anywhere in the US. So should it be? A lot of people say yes. And considering how quickly batteries can respond, it seems like almost a perfect fit for them to provide not only um, you know, primary frequency response, but also synthetic inertial response. Um, so have a really um, you know, complete service package. And we're going in that direction anyway with wind and solar. I mean, wind and solar can do the same thing. And so we're going to need to change the rules for wind and solar anyway, because they can also provide these, you know, high, high, high flexibility, fast response services. Yeah. Marek Kubik from Fluence wants to call a digital inertia which, uh, rather than synthetic inertia. And I think uh, he's got something of a point. I, I just wanted to quickly flick away from storage because I know I looked at one of your presentations that talked about the relative economics of uh, integration uh, options. And 
do you think there's still a lot more that can be done in the way of uh, demand response uh, and I guess more flexible ramping from the existing resources in the system um, that those economics might even be ahead of battery economics? Oh, absolutely. So when we talk about what we've historically called the flexibility supply curve, we always put storage as kind of the highest cost option. Now, that's maybe changing a little bit. Again, kind of looking at these dramatic reductions in battery prices, maybe I do need to rethink that. But it's it's hard to beat, you know, services that, that don't require a lot of physical hardware. Again, if you just get the pricing structure right, if you give me real-time services or real-time prices, um, that's just some software. And so, again, unleashing the power of market forces in the demand side, that's got to unleash some pretty low-cost flexibility. So so I still think there needs to be more of that. Um, better market integration. Um, you, you know, we've been talking about California and the fact that until a couple years ago, California had no market mechanisms or uh, they had you know, slow bilateral market transactions, but nothing, nothing quick. There is something now called an energy imbalance market that provides some real-time transactions, but there's still not a day-ahead market anywhere in the West except for California that allows exchange of power. So if I've got too much energy one place, it's still difficult for me to sell it to my neighbor, um, and that's that's kind of crazy. So um, there's a lot of potential opportunities for the whole suite of flexibility options. It's not just storage. Love to talk about storage; it's my favorite thing, but got to be realistic that there's about a hundred other things that that you should do and maybe many of them you should do before storage and, and one of the, yeah. okay. so i'm going to keep going giles one of the other big debates here in australia is about transmission versus distributed energy you know and, and whether you should uh, it's better to um do high renewables penetration with more local storage or, or use inter-system balancing effectively via building more transmission what's the current thinking on that in the united states that's a really tough one because we get into so many issues around, well, can we build new transmission? We have great solar resources here in the States. We also have great wind resources. Um, our wind resources tend to be in places where uh, with lower population. So we are going to need to build a lot more transmission to tap those sources. I hope that we don't have to make that choice. I hope that we can do both. We can tap our excellent wind resources with transmission. We can use local solar resources. And maybe we can also ship some of that really good solar resource in the southwest, farther east and farther north. Um, so, so put me down for wanting both. Can I just, um, we probably need to wrap up um, fairly soon. I've just got, we haven't talked much about wind energy and it's just interesting to see some of the recent projects being announced in Australia which are combining large-scale wind, um, large-scale solar and um, significant amounts of um, storage, in one case batteries, in another case pumped hydro. Have you in the, um, I'm kind of interested to know with the NREL when you talked about 80% renewables, uh, did you look at the sort of, a lot of the combination of wind and solar and how their sort of diurnal sort of, how they complement each other can actually reduce the need um, for storage? Um, is that actually a thing or is that, um, or are you still going to need so it, 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 yeah, it, it definitely is a thing. I, it's not as much of a thing as I think some people would like it to be. I, I, you know, it would be great if they were truly complementary. I mean, our wind does tend to blow more at night. Obviously, the sun in the day. Unfortunately, um, our wind tends to blow more in the spring, right when the demand in the U.S. is is fairly low or it's it's at its lowest. Um, our our demand peaks in the later part of the summer when obviously the sun peaks at you know the the summer. 
um, the, the, the June maximum. Um, so there's definitely some complementarity. I wish it were more. Um, I'll take what I can get. And then, yeah, if I need some so storage to fill in the gaps, I'll do what I need to do. And just, um, just in Australia, we've um, I mentioned South Australia beforehand, which is actually at fifty percent um, wind and solar, so fifty percent variable, variable renewables, which I'm, I'm presuming must be the, the highest in the world. And it's got that much um, other projects locked in to be built now, which will probably be at about seventy percent within five or six years. Very high level of distributed generation. Is that something? Is that an experience that you guys are keeping an eye on? Well, we, we always look around the world. Um, so we, we obviously followed the South Australia event very carefully, trying to learn what we could from that. I mean, we, we, we like it when other people make mistakes first so we don't repeat them. Um, we've it's been going very nicely for the last 12 months, mate. Yeah. Um, so, so no, um, I, you know, I've been at two meetings um, where, where some folks have presented the South Australian experience. Um, obviously, we, fire, we follow Ireland extensively, um, you know, a lot of Western Europe. I mean, quite frankly, you know, the Europeans kind of got everybody, uh, got ahead of everybody else really early. So a lot of this early stuff we, we followed out of Europe and then the Australians um, catching up um, and doing a bunch of things so so we absolutely you know look around the world and see what are other people doing um, we, we think we've caught up in a lot of ways you know we're, we're pretty proud of, of what we've done from from an engineering standpoint over the last decade but um, we still are heavily engaged with the international community um, on, on all these issues I, I think California and even Texas should both uh, take a bow I mean Texas is obviously the home of oil and gas but has done a fantastic job with wind and California's uh, standards and uh, progress and uh, policies uh, are, are all something I think we can learn a lot from. So, uh, and even you guys at NREL have produced some fantastic studies. So I'd like to congratulate you all on that. Thank you. Well, look, um, and Paul, thank you very much for joining us. We've really appreciated. I mean, we probably have another half an hour conversation, but um, time is limited. And um, just like to thank you for um, joining us um, on Energy Insiders today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And that was Paul Denham, a solar and storage expert from the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Colorado. David, um, fascinating insight into the view from America. It made me think as I was talking to Paul that wouldn't it be great to have such um, or more such institutions in Australia? Uh, well, that's right. We have the CSIRO and uh, ARENA and the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and uh, I'm hardly think you could put the Grattan Institute uh, in the same camp. <laughs> uh, but uh, look, I do think studying California, Giles, um, it's, it's ahead of us. It's policy. They think about these things very carefully. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, look, there's actually one question I put to him after the recording finished, and that was about these amazing bids that came when the Colorado in local utility XL went out and said, said, okay, we need some dispatchable energy. Has anybody got some gas and, or some renewables and storage to offer? And the bids came in quite extraordinarily low for wind and solar paired with storage. Now, Paul did make the comment when I did ask him about that off camera or off air, as it were, that um, one of the unknowns about that was that the amount of storage that was offered um, he did sort of say that the bids were quite stunning, but I guess that's what we've learned from these auctions over the years is that these new bid levels always stun and surprise, but it doesn't take long for them to become sort of, you know, the de facto price. Uh, look forward to some more bids in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Now, look, just um, some other news in um, some other news in Australia. Now, you went along to a CEDA luncheon on Friday, and I understand that you were fed, even though you went as a journalist. Um, you were listening to Andy Vasey and um, Kerry Schott. What did you make of it all? 
Look, not much. Andy Vasey was very guarded, made few comments uh, beyond what had already been reported. Kerry Schott um, re-announced her positions on the ESG. Um, I, I, actually, I didn't learn that much. It's a, the, the CEDA events are great networking opportunities, and I think CEDA does a fantastic job. But in this particular day, there wasn't that much news. Look, I did think it was important that Andy Vasey is holding firm on this idea of um, shutting down Liddell. It's, and... it's, a, it's a pantomime, Giles. Uh, this is one time Robin Proben on the ABC was absolutely right. It's a complete pantomime. A pantomime uh, from whom? The politicians? In the... No, no, and Andy Vasey. They're all, they're, they're all acting out their parts. You've got, you've got the big bad nasty guy in Tony Abbott uh, who knows he hasn't got a hope in Hill. You've got Josh Frydenberg uh, asking Andy Vasey to close Liddell. He knows perfectly well Andy Vasey's going to say no. Uh, but he, it's a complete charade from beginning to finish. I, I, you know, I, I would advise our listeners not to pay too much attention. Okay. Were you disappointed that Kerry Schott is, doesn't seem to be making any concessions at the moment on the National Energy Guarantee? Uh, well, I, I think she's there because she's going to... Look, her job is to get the energy up. Uh, that's her job, number one. Yeah. Yeah. What else is happening out there um, um, in, in the well, world? Well, a, a couple of couple of things, Giles. Uh, I'm just conscious of the time. Um, the first thing I've noticed is that the REC prices in beyond 2020 have, have dropped down quite sharply in uh, recent weeks. Um, I've from, seen what, quotes, from, quite, from what to what and why? Well, I think they're down at around 20-something dollars now. Um, uh, $27 for calendar 21. Calendar 22. That is low. Yeah. Um, and why? I, I guess it's because the market's adjusting to, to, to new supply. I've been expecting that to happen for a while, so it doesn't greatly surprise me. But uh, I also think it reflects perhaps that there's nothing happening in the NEG that, uh, that distinguishes, that's helpful to the current LGC scheme. I guess people were expecting that there wasn't going to be much value of the LGCs from 2020 through to 2030 anyway. But I guess it just reinforces this idea that there's, you know, three and a half billion dollars going out in subsidies every year between now and 2030 is just pure poppycock because the LGC price is going to be at $20 or possibly even less than that, um, quite close to zero for most of the next decade. Look, I think all policies should be judged by the yardstick of the fact that it's not just Liddell, it's a raring. Um, it's probably going to be Vale's Point, uh, it's Bayswater, uh, and eventually it's, it's, it's going to be uh, Energy Australia's um, coal-fired power plant are all going to close over the next 15 years. And we have to judge uh, 2032 at the latest for a raring. Uh, we have to judge policy by whether it gets new supply built in time to prevent the price spikes and shortages and events that occurred around the closure of uh, mm. Hazelwood. Mm-hmm. And there seems to be still a few delays happening in the solar, large-scale solar. Um, you were mentioning before that um, we thought there'd be a few more large-scale solar farms coming online in the first quarter. Um, the same thing happened last year, actually. I think a lot of it's got to do with the fact that some of these transmission companies and these dis- uh, networks are struggling with some of these large-scale solar issues. There's also that new um, requirement um, on sort of continuous uninterruption or whatever it's called from AEMO, which is actually causing them to sort of downsize some of the or downsize some of the capacity because of the amount of inverters they actually had installed and, and they don't want the solar farms to vary from a certain level. Um, well, I, I just look for them to show up in the system. But, uh, you know, some of the ones in the database that I have, I, it's always, you know, the Whit Sunday and Darling, Darling Downs, the Hamilton uh, uh, Solar Farm, 
um, uh, the Ganawara one, which I think is fairly close uh, now, uh, are, are all ones that um, the Sun Metal Solar Farm, Clear Solar, all ones that were in my sort of databases sh showing up in the March quarter, and frankly, mm. not much happening right this very second. No, and ditto for the um, NeoN um, ones at Parks, Griffith and Dubbo, I think, 113 megawatts, which I understand have been built complete for a while in, in, in the sense of all the modules installed, but still um, not switched on and, and communicating with the grid. Look, David, um, thanks again for a lovely week, um, a lovely podcast. Um, this solar smart energy conference happening this week, that should be interesting. Look forward to catching up with you there and also some of our readers and um, some of the other big names in the industry. Look, it should be a great networking event, should be some great presentations. I understand they're only 15-minute presentations, so it's uh, uh, um, uh, speak up and be damned and uh, talk privately and let's let's keep the show rolling. Good on you. Okay, thanks, David. Um, thanks again to our, um, uh, our sponsors, Solarate Energy and What Watchers. Thanks to our listeners, and we'll be back again next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by What Watchers makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs, accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solarray Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.